I want to join my voices with theirs to celebrate all of the moms today on Mother's Day. Moms and daughters of God, you show us the way of Jesus in your compassion, in your daily sacrifice, in your nurturing, in your kindness, in your limitless love for your family, for your brothers and sisters, for our church family. We are better because of you. We are stronger because of you. Thank you for being you. Today, I pray strength over you. I pray a renewed joy and a renewed vision for you, in you, for your family and those around you. And maybe more important than anything, I pray a sweet nap this afternoon for all the moms and pray that your kids give it to you. Let's thank God for all the moms once again. Amen. I want to welcome you here at Carrollton and all of you joining us online today on this special day as we thank God and as we gather to worship Him. I don't know if you're like me, but it's pretty easy for a good thing to become overly important, isn't it? I know for me, sometimes I found myself reaching for my, tone, uh, for my phone too quickly and too often because I want to check social media. Not because social media is bad, but because it's become overly important and I have to hold myself back. I love relationships and I enjoy them, but it's not difficult for me to associate my worth and my self-esteem based on how others view me. We all know that desire is a wonderful thing, but there is this fine, thin line where desire crosses over and it becomes covetousness. Zeal is an amazing driver in life, but when it crosses that same line, zeal can become jealousy. It's good to be proud, proud of yourself, proud of your family, proud of your work, proud of your nation. We ought to be proud of those things. But there is a line where healthy pride crosses over and becomes prideful. I've heard it said like this, good things become bad things when good things become the best things. When good things become the best things, they're elevated, they're overly important, they are too attractive and they consume our life. Over the last few weeks in this series called Church for Mondays, we've been talking about the call of work, the invitation to work, to be productive. And work is one of those things when it's kept in its right boundaries, within its right parameters. Work can be a wonderful thing. We've said that work was part of God's original design. It is a gift, not a curse. It's part of this invitation to be productive, to be impactful. Work gives us the opportunity to provide for our families. Work allows our gifts and passions to coincide to where we make a difference in the way that God has wired us to. Work can be a beautiful thing. But there is that fine, thin, and sometimes invisible line that if work crosses over to that, work that is meant to be a part of our life becomes our life. And work is all consuming. It's all we think about. It's all we worry about. It's all that we spend our waking hours and even at night doing. And when work crosses over that line, instead of worshiping God through our work, we end up worshiping work. Rather than worshiping through our work, rather than worshiping at our work, we end up worshiping our work. There is a new, potent, growing religion in America called workism. Workism. Well, what is workism? Writer Derek Thompson in the magazine The Atlantic, he wrote it like this Workism is a belief that work is not only necessary for economic production 
but also is the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. Work is not just needed. Work becomes a centerpiece of your life, of your identity, and of your life's purpose. Workism. Economist Gordon Dahl, he wrote it like this. And I want you to pay careful attention to his words. It's going to be on the screen. Most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Think about that. Most middle-class Americans, really, I think that's been too limited. A lot of us, all of us, we can tend to worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. As a result, their meanings and values are distorted. Their relationships disintegrate faster than they can keep them in repair. Work within its proper boundaries is a wonderful thing, but when work crosses that line and it becomes our life, it becomes our worship, work can turn into being disastrous. The Bible has a word to call something anything other than God that has become the most important thing in our life. Anything other than God that has become the most important thing in our life, it's called an idol. An idol. Now when we think of idols, we think about a graven image or a carved out image of stone or wood. But idol literally is anything that has become the most important thing in your life if it's not God. That is an idol. Timothy Keller, he writes like this, idolatry means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. A good thing becomes ultimate. A good thing becomes the best thing. A good relationship, a good product, a good thing becomes ultimate. And that is idolatry. So in our work, it's easy for our work to become a factory of idols. A factory that produces a good thing and makes them the best thing. The ultimate thing. Listen to how Isaiah in the Old Testament describes idols. Isaiah 2 verse 8 says, Their land is full of worthless idols. They worship the work of their hands, what their fingers have made. Micah 5.13 describes idols like this, I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will no longer worship the work of your hands. Wow, isn't it fascinating, certainly not coincidental, that when the scriptures describe idols, it describes it as the work of our hands. The very work of our hands. Back in those days, the work of the hands were things you produced with your hand. It was images and graven images. But today, the work of our hand is the work of your hand. It's your productivity. It's the reputation you've built. It's the world you've created. It is your title, your salary, your work. That's the work of your hands. And that the work of our hands become the most important thing about our life. If that becomes ultimate and the object of our worship, if that's what we think about, if that's what we talk about all the time, and if we cannot get our minds off of the work of our hands, our work has become an idol. One of the many things that I love about the Bible, and one of the ways that the Bible, the scripture, authenticates itself is that it includes the failures, the mistakes, the sin of those that God chose to be leaders and those that he chose to write the scriptures. Like if I'm writing a book about myself, I'm going to probably make myself look really good. Okay, That's how you know the Bible wasn't written by just human beings. It wasn't just inspired by men. God inspired this book. And when he did into this holy book, he put in it the stories, the flaws, the failures, the brokenness of people that he used, that he chose. 
And one of them was King Solomon. King Solomon, by no comparison, was the wealthiest, most successful person in his day. And even comparing to today, to modern day, he would have had more wealth, power, influence in the world than anyone even today. At one point, Solomon just employed 300,000 people at a whim to build the temple of God. That's how much resource and people were available to Solomon. Solomon was given uh, the supernatural gift of wisdom to know right and wrong, to know what to do, to make right decisions. He was given the gift of wisdom, but the only problem was there were some areas of his life that he didn't quite apply the gift of wisdom. One was in relationships. Yeah, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You don't need the supernatural gift of wisdom to know that that's not a good idea. (laughs) The other was the area of work. Solomon self-admits in Ecclesiastes that he's a workaholic, that he made work an idol. Notice the words in Ecclesiastes 2, as Solomon writes this in verse 4 onwards. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amazed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself, many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for my struggles." After Solomon goes through a litany, a list, a long list of all that he's done, all that he's achieved, you would think he would look back and say, wow, I'm so satisfied, I'm so fulfilled, I'm so thankful that I got to live this kind of a life. But notice what he says as he looks back and reflects on all that he has just said. Verse 11, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had done to labor to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon says, I increased, I achieved, I did all of these things, I found new projects to achieve. I accomplished so much, I built this incredible empire, but as I look back at what I thought would fulfill me, I realized it didn't. As a survey, I thought what would satisfy the deepest needs of my heart, I realized it doesn't. It was all futile. It was a pursuit of the wind. It got me nowhere. Just notice the verbs that Solomon uses here. I increased, I built, I made, I planted, I constructed, I acquired, I owned, I amassed, I gathered. Sounds like a busy life, doesn't it? Does it sound like your life? Does it sound like your day-to-day, your week-to-week? Solomon even says, whatever my eyes wanted, I refused it nothing. 
I got all the pleasures I wanted. I worked for it. I just made it happen. Whatever I needed to do to give me more pleasure, to give me more achievement, I did it. It was my greatest reward. He even says, my struggles became my pleasure. It's an awkward statement. My struggles became my pleasure. I think what he's saying is, I knew it would cost me. I knew it would be hard. I knew I would have to give up my own health, my family, my relationships, my own sanity. But I made my very struggle my pleasure just to keep driving, just to keep going. I was so addicted to pleasure that even if it came at great cost and great lengths, I just had to get to the other side of it. I want to point out at least three ways that work becomes an idol for Solomon and for you and I. Three ways that work becomes our idol. If you look at this context of this verse, verse 11, from just verse 1 through 11, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2 uses the word my, mine, I, myself 34 times. 11 verses, 34 times. It's about what he did. Solomon deeply anchors who he is to what he does. His worth, his value, his significance is entirely dependent on the identity of what he is doing. He is consumed in his work to a point where he can't separate who he is from what he does. So the first observation is that work becomes an idol when work is your primary identity. When it's your primary and even ultimate identity, work has become an idol. I want you to think about when you introduce yourself to somebody new or when someone new meets you. Isn't it just a matter of minutes before either you ask or you are asked about your work? Right? Someone asks you, they meet you for the first time. It's all about what do you do? Tell me how you earn an income. Tell me what you do in life. Because we have gotten so used to our work becoming such a part of our identity. It's all consuming. It has become a part of who we are. But as a follower of Jesus, our primary identity is not in our work. Our identity is in what Jesus has done for us. It's in his finished work. Our primary identity is never in what we do, but in what Jesus has done. So what is it that he has done? He has made us who are prisoners now free. He has made sinners saints. He has forgiven us. He has redeemed us by his blood. That's who we are, church family. I know it doesn't make for a great introduction, but you are the blood-bought, redeemed child of God. That's who you are at the core, and that must always be how you view yourself. Because ultimately, how we view ourselves becomes what we think about ourselves. And if you see yourself, if you think about yourself, as primarily a child of God, purchased, saved, and redeemed, and that means that becomes the source of your acceptance. That becomes the source of your worth, your significance, your value, your peace. is all about who you are in Christ. But if your primary identity, if your ultimate identity is who you are at your job, as an employee, as an employer, if work becomes your identity, then work then becomes the source of your acceptance. It becomes a source of your significance, the source of your joy. So you come home from work, and if work is your primary identity, you may feel great if you had an amazing day at work. If the projects worked and you performed and everything was productive, then you're going to feel amazing. You're going to feel at the top of the world. But if you come home and you didn't have a good day, and you didn't perform, and it was a horrible day at work, now your spirit is crushed. Because work 
became your greatest identity, your sense of peace, your sense of joy, your sense of stability was anchored in the identity of your work. Friends, if work is the foundation for your security, then that means work will also be the foundation of your insecurity. If work becomes a place of meaning and identity and joy and peace, if performance and productivity is that for you, then the inverse is also true. John Piper says it like this, work is an idol when work is the root of our acceptance rather than the fruit of our acceptance. Work is an idol when work is the root of our acceptance rather than the fruit of our acceptance. Work is an idol when we're trying to be accepted through our work, when we're trying to be significant through our work, when we are trying to be loved and approved and accepted, embraced, welcomed by our work. That's when work is an idol. We're trying to achieve what God has already given us. But work is worship when we work out of the overflow of who we already are in Christ. When we serve people, when we work our jobs, when we live out of the overflow of already being accepted, already being loved, already being fully known and fully embraced, already having an A, already being approved by God, when that's the place we work from, that becomes worship. Because we're not working to be accepted, we're working from our place of acceptance. It's not the root of who we are, it's the fruit of who we are. When work becomes a source of who we are, work becomes a grace-belittling idol. Belittles the grace of God that saved us not on our account, but on the account of Jesus. Belittles the cross of Jesus that speaks a word about who you are. But when we work out of our identity in Christ, it frees us from every insecurity and it protects us from every false identity. Your primary identity is not the roles you play, as Steve mentioned. It's not the role of an employer, employee, dad, mom, brother, sister. Those are amazing roles God has gifted you with. But none of those things are your primary identity. You are a son, a daughter, a child of Almighty God. Solomon, as he goes on in Ecclesiastes 2, self-admits that he refused himself no pleasure, so he threw himself deeper and deeper into work. Work became his greatest reward. And soon he found himself incapable of being satisfied because his achievements became an addiction. And it was never enough. His achievements became an addiction. It was never enough. So the second observation of how work becomes an idol is that work becomes an idol when work is your greatest satisfaction. When work is your greatest satisfaction, it's a source of how you are fulfilled and satisfied. It becomes an idol. Hannah Manlikova. Manlikova was an amazing tennis player. She was one of the best in the world. She won the Australian Open in 1980, the French Open in 1981, the US Open in 1985, then again the Australian Open in 1987. She was inducted into the tennis, International Tennis Hall of Fame in 1994. She was the best of her day. After one of her major victories, she was asked about how she felt, how she felt on this pinnacle moment of her career, of her life. And this is what she said. Any big win means that all the suffering, practicing and traveling are worth it. I feel like I own the world. 
Then she was asked, how long will this feeling last? And she said, about two minutes. <laughs> about two minutes. Lifelong of working, pursuing, achieving, all for two minutes satisfaction that we get from work. And if work becomes your greatest satisfaction, whatever that is, wherever that is, at home, at a job, in your community, if that is your greatest satisfaction, this too will be our story. We will lay on the altar of success relationships and the most important things in life for what seems urgent for a two-minute gratification, a two-minute satisfaction. Now, don't get me wrong. Goals are important. You ought to have them. You ought to work really hard towards the goals you have. Goals are great, but they make terrible life purposes. Goals are good, but they're not the main thing. They're not the life purposes that God has given you. Only God can be sustainably your source of satisfaction. Only he can do that. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength which means my strength is in the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Your strength is in Him. And it'll be your strength today. It'll be your strength through a recession. It'll be your strength in 10 years. It'll be your strength in retirement and between jobs. It's the joy of the Lord that satisfies. It's His joy that becomes your strength. It's fascinating that in the order of creation, when God made Adam and Eve, before He gave them meaningful work, and before he gave them to each other as a family, they both independently had an intimate relationship with God. God wanted them to know that he was their greatest satisfaction so that before they looked to family or to work, they would continually look to God to be the only satisfaction that could meet the deepest need of their heart. And this is the same for you and I. He is our greatest satisfaction. And we are better parents and better husbands and wives and better singles, better workers. When we keep coming back to the source of God as being our satisfaction. If you're a stay-at-home parent, and you work directly with kids, raising, nurturing, educating them. That's a good work. Even the most important work. But it's very possible that even our own kids can become the greatest source of satisfaction. So we become satisfied, fulfilled based on how they're doing, how they're behaving, the decisions they're making. It's possible that your marriage can become the greatest source of satisfaction. Remember that an idol is a good thing becoming the ultimate thing. It could be anything. It could be your spouse. It could be a friend. It could be a relationship. Even in singleness, we could build our satisfactions around the freedoms we have as a single person. And then that could become an idol. So whatever a good thing becomes the greatest source of satisfaction, has been thrown on our soul as the most important part of who we are. When work is an idol, when work is our greatest satisfaction, our work becomes self-medication. Our work becomes self-medication. We live for the praise from our work that we get from others. Our achievements become our greatest affirmation and we'll lay the most important things in life at the altar of more of it, more of success, more of a degree, more of a title, more reputation. It becomes self-medication. Tim Keller, in the book, Every Good Endeavor, he writes it like this. If the point of work is to serve and exalt ourselves, then our work inevitably becomes less about the work and more about us. Our aggressiveness will eventually become abuse. Our drive will become burnout. 
and our self-sufficiency will become self-loathing. But the purpose of work is to serve and exalt something beyond ourselves, to love God, to worship God, to serve people. Then we actually have a better reason to deploy our talent, ambition, and entrepreneurial vigor. And we more likely will be successful in the long run, even by the world's definition. He's saying, anchor your life in a deeper satisfaction. Anchor your life in a greater purpose than even work itself. Build your life around Jesus, around God, around someone bigger than you, someone bigger than life. And when you do, when you deploy your talents, gifts, passions at work, you will in the long run be more fulfilled and more successful. Work becomes an idol when it's our primary identity, when it's our greatest satisfaction. And lastly, work becomes an idol when it's our highest hope. When work is our highest hope, it becomes an idol. In ancient times, monks and religious leaders would often withdraw from the world to be saved. They saw uh, asceticism and withdrawal from earthly things as a form of salvation. And today, the opposite is true. In modern day, we enmesh ourselves in the world. We enmesh ourselves in our career, in our work, to pursue some form of salvation. It becomes our hope. That it's so easy for our career to be our hope for success, our hope for meaning, our hope for legacy, even our hope for gaining family approval and affirmation by those we consider to be important. It becomes our hope, our highest hope. And in that moment, if work is our highest hope, it becomes our greatest idol. Here's how you know that work is your highest hope. Is the lack of work your greatest fear? Is the lack of work your highest fear? If the lack of work is your highest fear, then work has become your highest hope. Lack of productivity, lack of results, lack of income, lack of stability. If those things have become the greatest fear factors in your life, then you have directly associated hope to your work. As you continue to read in Ecclesiastes 2, you got a front row seat into Solomon's greatest fear, which is the longevity of his work, the productivity of his work. It is causing inner turmoil, anxiety in him as he thinks about his work. He has made his work his greatest fear because he has made it his highest hope. Listen to the inner thoughts of Solomon in verse 17 to 18 of Ecclesiastes 2. Therefore, I hate a life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything is futile and a pursuit of the wind. I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. Verse 23. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is futile. Solomon spent his whole life working, achieving, building, and now he's thinking, what's going to come of it after me? He can't even find rest at night. He is plagued with anxiety and thoughts, thinking about the very results of his work. And he says, I found life to be horrible. I cannot find peace. This is so futile. It's the pursuit of the wind. This is what happens when our highest hope is our work. 
because then our highest worry and anxiety and fear is also our work. But friends, the gospel of Jesus frees us from this. It frees us from work becoming our highest hope because Jesus is our highest hope. He is our greatest security. He is our living hope. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is where our hope is inspired from. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is a hope of glory. Ephesians 1.18 prays for our hearts to be enlightened so that we would know the hope to which we have been called. 1 Peter 1.13 says, set your hope on the return of Jesus when grace in all of his fullness is revealed. Hebrews 10.23 tells us to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because the God who promised is faithful. Friends, our jobs are not our hopes. Our family are not our hope. Our relationships are not our hope. Our titles, our income, our salary, our 401s, our retirement, none of those things are our hope. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. He is our hope. And get this, when Jesus is your hope, you have nothing to fear. How calming is that? How settling is that? When he is your highest and every hope, not just for your spiritual life, but hope for everything, you have nothing to fear. Fear has lost its grip. Because work is no longer idle. Jesus is your greatest hope. Solomon, at some point in his life, repented of work being his idol, of work being his primary identity highest satisfaction and greatest hope. And he dethroned work from the throne of his soul. And God became the center of his life. I'll prove it to you. Same Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes 2, wrote Psalm 127. You remember how in Ecclesiastes 2, it's all about I did this, I built, I planted, I bought, I ruled the world. But notice the incredible contrast, the complete opposite when he writes Psalm 127, verse one to two, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor it in vain, labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain, you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. When work has been dethroned from being an idol in his life, Solomon says, who is it that's building the house? It's not me, it's the Lord. Who is it that's watching over the city, meaning protecting my work, protecting my city? It's not me, it's the Lord. And Solomon, who couldn't even sleep at night because he's staying up with anxiety, gripping his heart, says, God gives rest to the one he loves. He gives sleep to the one he loves. Verse 2 is fascinated because there's two translations that are offered to us. One is this, that God gives sleep to the one he loves. The other translation is, yes, God gives all that we need while we sleep. The NASB reads it like this. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Wow. We can sleep because God's still working. We can rest because we can trust God to build, God to protect. And even while we rest that he is still awake, he is still watching over you. He is still working on your behalf. 
For Solomon at one point in his life, work was an idol because he trusted in his work. But now work is worship because he doesn't trust in his work. He trusts in God for his work. He trusts in the Lord for his work to build, to protect, to give him rest. He trusts in God enough to sleep. He trusted in God enough to take a nap. He trusted in God enough to rest. Can I give you the most basic, but sometimes the hardest cure for work being an idol? It is this, it's rest. It is rest. It is trusting in God enough to rest. Trusting in him to take a day off. Trusting in him enough to turn your phone off, to silence your email, to go on a vacation, to take some time away. It is trusting in God enough to rest. Let me tell you, your level of trust in God is directly correlated to your willingness to rest from work. Your level of trust in God for your work is directly correlated to your willingness to rest from work. And this is one of those messages I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> Even as I was writing the message this week, I looked around, there was like six devices. I had a desktop computer, a laptop, an iPad, an iPhone, an iWatch, six things. And I was taking five of those home with me that night to keep working. Isn't that true of all of us? We feel like we have to keep working, keep producing, keep answering, keep writing. But our level of trust in God for our work is our ability to rest from our work. Just as God was the author of work, God is also the author of rest. God didn't have to work, but he chose to. And God didn't have to rest, but he chose to. Think about that. God had no need to rest. He was God, but he chose to because he wanted to place into the pattern of the universe what we call the Sabbath, a day of rest. He wanted to give you time. He wanted to exemplify this rhythm needed in our week that we work six days and we rest one at least. And it is when we rest that we are brought back to our primary identity as being God's people. That we are restored in our soul to our greatest satisfaction, who is God. That we are brought back to our highest hope, which is Christ alone. We don't just work and rest so that we can get back to work. No, we rest for the sake of resting. We rest to connect back to our God, to remember who we are, what he says about us, that he is our worth, he is our significance. We rest to rest in God Almighty. In Mark 6, Jesus summons his followers, his disciples, his 12, and he sends them out in pairs to go and preach the message of repentance, to go drive out unclean spirits and to heal the sick. And that's exactly what they do. They go out all day long and they're preaching the kingdom of God. They're driving out evil spirits or healing the sick. They're doing the most important work, this exhilarating, impactful work. And they come home at the end of the day and they begin to tell Jesus about everything God did through them, all of their achievements, all of their ministry. And I love how Jesus responds to them after their amazing day of kingdom work. This is what Jesus orders them to do in verse 30 of Mark 6. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And here's what he said to them. Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. After a long day of wonderful kingdom work, 
Jesus saying, that's enough of work. Come away to a remote place and rest with me. You haven't even had time to eat. And this exhaustion will lead to burnout. So come and rest. Come and be quiet. Come be still with me. A huge temptation for people in ministry like me and vocational ministry is to find our worth and significance and identity in our ministry, in our work. And this was a bondage for me, especially early on. It was my worth and value was directly associated to how many people were saved, baptized, and attended the church. So as the attendance roster was up and down, so was my heart. I felt like I was working for God, so I needed to keep producing, keep working. And then John 15, verse 4, freed me of this. Jesus says in John 15, verse 4, Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I've read that verse before, but every time I put the emphasis, the verb on bear fruit, go and bear fruit, then I realize that's actually not the leading verb here. The leading verb is remain. It's abide. It's rest. Remain in me. And when you do, you will automatically bear fruit. You will automatically be productive and impactful in the world. But the main command is to remain, is to rest. It is to abide in Jesus It is to come to the root of our acceptance, which is Christ alone. And then the fruit will come. It will come. And what this did for me was it taught me, I'm not working for God. I'm actually working with God. In all of our works, we're not working for God. We're working with him. And what matters more than the products is the person, the person of Jesus. What matters more than the results is the relationship. It's walking with Jesus. Remain resting in Christ. As new covenant, covenant believers, we don't simply rest with Jesus. We rest in him. We rest in him and who he is and who we are in him. That's our identity. That's our satisfaction. And that alone is our hope. I want to end with some practical tips today. So often we organize our calendar around what we want to do. But what if we organized our calendar not about what we want to do, but around who we want to be? What if our calendars, our weekly electronical, electronic physical calendars, actually reflected who we want to be? Who we want to be as a devoted follower of Jesus? Who we want to be as a faithful husband, loving wife, a student, a single adult, a senior adult? Who do we want to be? And what if we inserted into our weekly calendar rhythms and patterns that make us who we want to be, not just about what we want to do, but about who we want to be. So insert into your calendar this, maybe when you get home today, before you go to sleep, just review your calendar. What does it reflect about who you're becoming? What does it reflect about who you are becoming? Insert pockets of time, whether before work or after work, or in fact, better yet, throughout your day whether it be two-minute pockets or five-minute pockets, between meetings, between patients, between your next outing. I want to sit and be still and be quiet. I want to read scripture. I want to pray. I want to have a moment of meditating on who I already am, how I've already been accepted, how I'm already approved, how Jesus is my greatest satisfaction. Build your calendar not about what you need to do, but who you want to be.
it's been a while since you've had a day of rest. Trust God enough to rest. Trust God enough to take a step back. Ask your spouse, ask your closest friend, am I working too much? Is work an idol for me? My prayer today is that work would not be the root of who we are, but simply the fruit of who we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the invitation to rest in your goodness, that you have given us rest, and may we find it today. Come all who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says Jesus. For the most important rest is our spiritual rest. There's somebody who today is trying to work their way to God, trying to achieve their position, their favor with God. May they know that you have already done the work. You gave your son Jesus to come, to die, to be raised from the grave so that we could be embraced and accepted. And today we rest in that. We rest in Jesus. Yet for all of the good work that you have called us to, may our good work not become disastrous. May our good work not take us away from the God of the work, from the people in our life that you have called us to. May we distinguish between identity and role and never get those two confused. And Father, may we rest in the identity of who we are as children of God. In you being our highest hope so that we have nothing to fear. In you being our most stable and greatest satisfaction. And now we work, we serve, we give our lives from a place of who we are to you. It is a fruit and not the root. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Can we give God thanks for his word today? His word is good. Thank you so much for being with us today. And if you're new today or if you're distant from Jesus, today is a day you can receive the perfect work of Jesus for you. We invite you to online, take your next steps. And even in this room, there's a prayer room that is waiting for you. A welcome center waiting for your questions. We invite you to become a part of the family of God and know what it is to be finally at rest in your heart, in your soul. If you've got questions, we would love to answer that for you as well. Moms and sisters, we hope you take advantage of the photo walls out there. May this be a beautiful time of celebrating one another and celebrating the goodness of God that allows us to rest in him. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.